It's September 2nd, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Ozawa. First up, we'll hear about two upcoming events. Jason Sewell from Dev League is here to tell us about Dev League Prep, a new introductory hands-on course for anyone who wants to learn programming. Then, Alexander Meyer and Christina Bacalega join us to tell us about an event called Creating Futures Rooted in Wonder, Bridges Between Indigenous Science Fiction and Fairy Tale Studies. Finally, for the rest of the hour, we'll talk to the scientists who were aboard the Schmidt Ocean Institute vessel called the Falkor and find out what data they collected and what it tells us about El Nino and how it affects the weather. Kelvin Richards and Andre Nadarov from UH are here, and we'd love you as part of the conversation as well, so you can be ready to call in or tweet after the break. Of course, we will start with Jason Sewell, and of course, we've had him on as, along with his uh, partner, uh, Russell Chang, and talking about Dev League, and, and he's here to tell us about a new program called PrEP. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hi, thank you for having me again. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we've been uh, talking about Dev League and, and the great work you guys have do, ha, are doing, you know, trying to get more programmers really ready for the market. And this idea of a sort of a workshop to prep the actual event of going through the intensive, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, just like everything we do, it's all about immersion, right, and, and really getting a lot of value for the time you put in. Um, so, you know, when people apply to Dev League to come into the 12-week course, we don't have um, any, you know, prerequisites mm-hmm. that to, mm-hmm. to apply. But to actually get accepted and to come into the program, you do have to have a certain, you know, base knowledge and get through um, what we have as a coding challenge is, is our entrance exam. Um, so a lot of people, um, you know, they, they struggle with it and they, you know, they're on their own trying to figure this out and it's very hard and and um it's you know for a lot of people that's kind of where they drop off is it's very hard to learn on your own and people think that it's just not for them um and so we were kind of you know trying to help people as much as we can over the past but um with more people interested now and and just you know the as challenging challenging as it was Mm -hmm. it, it just made sense for us to kind of start um helping people more you know up front because you know there is so much interest and so um, so it's kind of twofold is that for people that are considering coming into the program, um, you know, they can get help and, and really get exposure and get some, some real hands-on training. And, um, and again, it's uh, immersive still. Uh, it's, for, you know, 48 hours total over four weeks. And um, figure out if it's for them, um, you know, and if, and, and if it's not, you know, at least they still come away knowing something more about programming, knowing, about, you know, how application, you know, programming works and applications on the web. So are you uh, are you having people apply for the 12 week intensive that perhaps need to be more experienced? I mean, is that really kind of the the big differentiator? Um yeah, I mean, people are still welcome to apply, and they they don't have to take the prep to um, to apply for the full time course. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're just starting out, it's now an option to them to um, you know to help help out at those beginning steps. And then you know now that we have more people coming through this, and you know it probably allows us to start a little bit faster and a little bit um, you know kind of farther down the road, and and that directly leads to the out outcome of, you know, how far people are when they finish the program. Now, I like the idea of Dev League. Of course, there are a lot of coding boot camps out there. I know people who've left Hawaii to attend them, mm-hmm. but it's nice to have one here in Hawaii. Yes. But it is clear, it is important to note that although it says that we can get you from 
almost zero to a programmer ready for a job and you have impressive job placement specs, it's not quite starting from zero. And I would imagine that because your cohorts are small, certainly you want everybody who comes in for that actual intensive program to be on at least at the same level so you can speak the same language moving forward. So what are some of the skills that uh, that a complete beginner would need, say, Dev League prep to get up to the prerequisite? If you're going from zero to 10, you want to get them to one before they come in. What is that step one? Uh, that step one is really just kind of taking the initiative to, um, I think, that it's something that you really want to do. Um, so much of what we talk about is um, is motivation and, and hard work. And, and really, I mean, we just... Um, really just drive that home all the time is that so much more people are probably capable than than they think they may be and that's again why we see so much of that drop off up front because they just kind of beat themselves up like i just can't do this and we know we know different you know if if you have the motivation to do it we'll you know we'll help you kind of learn and um and it really is about immersion that's how you really kind of learn quickly so So what's in the curriculum of dev league prep so Dev League Prep is going to be, um, you know, JavaScript is the programming language of choice, obviously, because that's, you know, what we do for the full-time class. But um, it's really going to be about the basics of the web, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, because that's what our coding challenge is, and that's kind of what we're preparing for is, is for people to become web developers. But really, it's teaching programming, you know, the very basics of just, you know, control flow and using variables and just what is programming? How do you think logically to kind of problem solve and just um, kind of keeping it at that base level? Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> when uh, what one of the things that you folks uh, emphasize is that when you go through the actual program, the 12-week intensive, uh, they are pretty much ready to get hired by any company looking for programmers. Yep. And, and so... Uh, you know, at, at at what level of you know, in terms of the prep workshop, uh, what level do you want them to be at? Um, coming out of the prep, mm-hmm. um, they so they would still have to go through our coding challenge and our entrance exam, and so really, um, we're hoping that you know that they can successfully complete that after after having instruction and um, and feel motivated uh, or kind of have an, an idea that this is truly something that they want to do. For us, it, it gives us an idea of, of what their level of motivation is, and, and that's always helpful. Um, and then, yeah, so, you know, they will get a ch- uh, uh, our coding challenge, which is to actually build some real working, uh, a small application, and actually apply what they've learned um, in, in a non-guided format. Mm-hmm. So they really mm-hmm. have to execute on it. Well, you know, my son, my youngest son, in fact, he's 11, and he's teaching himself on Udemy to do OSX programming. He awesome. started with Lightbot, which is an iOS app to teach the basic principles. Right. I feel like I almost want to give him your your entrance exam just to see <laughs> how he would do, because he he's already kicking my butt, but I'd really like to see how that lines up. But I like that Dev League Prep is an option for somebody who really wants to kind of feel it out before committing or even going for that test that mm-hmm. might intimidate them. If someone was interested in enrolling in Dev League Prep, are there specific semesters you're looking at? How do they get more information? Um, so they can come to, uh, they could reach us at contact at devleague.com right now, D-E-V-L-E-A-G-U-E. Um, and we'll have a site up soon that's going to have a, a, a more consistent schedule. Our first offering is September 8th um, for four weeks, and it's a total of 48 hours. So again, like you said, um, even testing this out, you come away with knowledge um, more than you had before. And um, and actually for the first one, we're doing special introductory pricing of um what is it? Uh, five hundred 
Uh, $525. And that actually, if you do continue and you make it into the intensive program, that goes toward that tuition. Yes, that's credit towards the cost of the program. So we will roll that over into your tuition so you're not having to kind of double up. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Jason, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, of course, now we're going to have um, Alexander Moyer and Christina Bakilega. And they're here to tell us about something coming up called Creating future futures rooted in wonder. Of course, this is, of course, interesting to me. I love wonder. Yes, you do. And, and this is bridges between indigenous science fiction and fairy tale studies. And let me just um, kind of back up a little bit. Um, Alexander is an assistant professor over at the Pacific Studies, and and uh, Christina Bakilega is a uh, professor of English uh, over at the University of Hawaii, and we want to welcome them both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so this is a very interesting title, and it really kind of captivated me when I first read it. It's, it's, it's again, f- creating futures rooted in wonder. And I'd like to hear a little bit about what went into the, the design of this event and the Maybe we can explore a little bit about the intersection of indigenous and, let's say, science fiction. Uh, what a, thank you so much for having us. And, you know, what an interesting question, right? It's kind of interesting being here to uh, talk about this event because we represent a sort of wide range of disciplines and colleagues at the university who have been working for a while to put this on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, just a week and a half from now in mid-September. It's a series of workshops and video game and design lounges um, public readings, uh, film screenings um, that folks have tried to put together to bring indigenous uh, scholars, creative writers, graphic artists, novelists, game designers into conversation with academics who are sort of more interested in the history of tales of wonder. Mm-hmm. So, um, Christina? Christina, I mean, it sounds like this is a much more, uh, not that there's anything wrong with academic symposia, but it sounds like you're really kind of thinking outside the box and make something more uh, different for this program. We're taking the lead, really, from artists, uh, whether they're visual artists or um, writers. Um, We're taking the lead from them because it is in stories and through stories that uh, people are making these connections. What is the value of um, indigenous knowledge, indigenous culture, indigenous people in imagining futures, um, our futures, uh, all of uh, us, but um, what are what are what is the particular role that indigenous knowledge can have mm-hmm. in making more um, just and sustainable futures possible? Well, stories, old stories, new stories, stories about the past, stories about the future, are helping us imagine these futures, and that's what we want to feature in this uh, event. Uh, it's a scholarly event, but it's also a very creative and, we hope, mm. productive event mm. for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that, that has uh, fascinated me, and, and I think we, we try to bring some attention to it uh, on, on uh, Bite Marks Cafe, uh, there is some very unique and, and, I think, valuable stories that are being told through tradition. And so tradition has a lot of you know, great knowledge to impart on us. Um, and, of course, being a science and technology show, we're oftentimes very much immersed in, you know, sort of this 21st century. Sometimes it's almost like a steamroller of technology that's just rolling over us. 
Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the intersection between traditional knowledge and technology and how does that start to weave itself into, and let's say, a new form? Alexander? Well, you know, I, th- I think it's really interesting. When folks think about indigenous studies or indigenous wisdom, the wisdom of the ancestors or the peoples of the past, mm-hmm. they tend to assume it's about making a connection to the present and in this present moment feeling the presence of the past with us now. And what's kind of interesting about the thing that we're trying to do with this conference and these gatherings is to it really, as I think you're pointing to, point to the fact that all of this material from the past is also about the future, right? It's, it, and possibly the deep future. The, the sort of the indigenous knowledge, whether it's knowledge of ecology or of mathematics or of astronomy or of navigation or, or moral wisdom of various kinds, mm-hmm. doesn't just connect people in our moment now to their ancestors or to the peoples uh, who, were, who were on this landscape before, but can help people now imagine where their descendants might be in centuries or generations to come when the techno structure of life is radically transformed, right? I mean, I think, I think when you ask that question, that's what comes to my mind. Right, we are developing techno systems that we cannot even imagine in their futuristic implementation downstream. Mm-hmm. No, Thinking, oh, uh, please, Christina. I mean, I like that you're also including science fiction and these visions of the future. We've recently talked about the Indigenous Knowledge and Education Program, the EK program at UH. And when you mentioned science fiction and visions of the future, there was recently they recently announced the Hugo Award winners, for, generally thought of as the awards for the best science fiction out there. But this last round was extremely controversial, specifically because there is in fact a battle between what you would say is the establishment of science fiction and these alternative voices, different genders, different sexualities, different cultures, and so it seems like. Like this is the the time is rife really to kind of take these questions head on and say that we really should put the spotlight on these voices that might uh, might otherwise be heard. The people that we have invited um, are representing these voices actually, and the um, one of the co-editors of Octavia's Brood will be uh, talking, and um, for her and uh, people in that group, the Octavia's Brood, which is named after Octavia Butler, of course. Um, any kind of speculative fiction or imagining, right, a universe that we don't have right now um, is a form of activism. And uh, these people have not been um, uh, recognized right, right. Uh, as and, and much, but they are being read and they are having a lot of impact on uh, readers and listeners. So it would be fascinating to sort of vision how a let's say a uh, native hawaiian um olelo might be told in the year 2500 right and how does that really connect with what we're doing now with what was done in the past and what what be, what might be done you know 400 years from now right right well maybe Absolutely. 500 years <laughs> 500 right. years from now so how how do you envision this question might be tackled during your event one of the people um, who will be leading a workshop is Solomon Enos, mm-hmm. um, and uh, of course he has—he's a visual artist. He has um, illustrated the Hiaka stories, so stories Moolelo from the past, uh, but he's also um, done comic strips, the Polyfantastica, where he is imagining it's science fiction, Hawaiian-style science mm-hmm. fiction. Mm-hmm. So um, I think. It's through the doing, really, that these questions will be addressed. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Alexander, what some other what other things might happen during this event? I understand there's going to be like a library or a book lounge there. I mean, so there's opportunity to just sort of immerse yourself, correct? Oh, uh, we've got um, uh, open to the public some film screenings. One of a Maori film, The Pa Boys, which has a a twist uh, and definitely a tale of wonder. Some short uh, film screenings one night, including uh, some machinima from a, a oh. visiting uh, a scholar colleague and creative artist. Um, there's a comic book lounge, a video game lounge, and a different day, some workshops. So I think there's a series also of public speaking events, uh, a, a quite a right, wide range of opportunities to engage. And the thing that uh, Christine was pointing to about engagement, I think, is at the heart of this gathering. Yeah, people should be here thinking, but also doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how indigenous people and indigenous novels, uh, uh, knowledge are um, really already active in the making of comic books and the making of video games and so on, but we are not usually exposed to them. Right. I think it was in a previous show we talked to a, a create, one of the creators of Never Alone, which was an Alaskan indigenous video game. So it, it is great to see this area uh, growing mm-hmm. for sure. You know, I'm, I, um, you know, I guess was it last week we had, uh, we had guests talking about uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, it's also, also part of uh, my curiosity to see how does artificial intelligence maybe get in, how does traditional knowledge uh, get incorporated into you know this new area of artificial intelligence. Now you don't have to answer this question because I know it's it's probably uh, a little bit of You're a going full geek. Uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> a topic that is needing to be explored, but perhaps uh, hasn't been. But the thing is, you know, there's there's um, I think the the opportunity is wide open for us to do a lot of different things. There is an emphasis on island communities and the ability for island communities to survive in the coming future, whether it's because of climate change or sea level rise or whatever. and But there are things about an island culture, an island community that is very, I think, uh, knowledgeable about conservation and the idea of, of limited resources. And as we continue to go down this somewhat sometimes technological path, we don't really consider those issues. But I think island knowledge has a lot of value to convey to that technological movement. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, I I love this question. You know, what kinds of unconscious ideas about nature or human nature or uh, the cosmological reality are programmed into artificial intelligences by by programmers, whatever communities they come from, but unconsciously and, you know, usually without reflection. And how might those things be programmed in differently if the programmers were to be sensitive to uh, other voices or other ways of thinking about nature or human nature or cosmological reality. Mm. So this event, Creating Futures Rooted in Wonder, Bridges Between Indigenous Science Fiction and Fairy Tale Studies. Christina, where is it happening? When is it happening? How can someone find more information? It's happening September 16th through the 19th at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, different buildings. and we will certainly put the uh, link up on the show notes tonight. So if anybody wants to check that out, uh, they are free to come to BiteMarksCafe.org later on the, this evening. Absolutely. Great. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, well, you. Thanks, Alex and uh, Christina, for joining us. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Kelvin Richards and Andre Nataro. 
and we'll talk about El Nino. How is ocean warming affecting our weather? Certainly something on our minds right now. We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689, or from the neighbor islands, you can call us toll-free at 877-941-3689. And we're live in the studio monitoring our Twitter accounts at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Hi, this is Ray Cruz inviting you to join me tonight from 8 to 10 for Latin Beat. I'll be playing classic Afro-Cuban Latin jazz, Latin big band classics, and share the latest releases in Latin jazz. That's Latin Beat tonight from 8 to 10 here on HBR2, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. See you tonight. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Robert Augustus Masters, author of Spiritual Bypassing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the many faces of spiritual bypassing. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Well, the Falkler is a cutting-edge research vessel operated by the Schmidt Ocean Institute. It recently returned from a three-week expedition in the waters of the central equatorial Pacific. And joining us today are two scientists who were aboard the Falkor on this latest expedition. We have Kelvin Richards and Andre Natarov. And Kelvin is a professor of oceanography uh, with the International Pacific Research Center School of Ocean and Earth, and Science and Technology. And Andre is an assistant researcher in the International Pacific Research Center as well, the School of Ocean and Earth, Science and Technology at the University of Hawaii. What did this voyage on the Falker tell us about the Pacific Ocean and El Nino? We'd, of course, love your questions and comments, too. You've got weather on your mind at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, toll-free 877-941-3689. Andre and Kelvin, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Well, welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Well, we'll start in with, uh, uh, I think, uh, what is on everybody's mind, and and that is uh, El Nino. And, of course, El Nino is something that's been talked about probably for the last, I'm going to say, what, couple of decades at (laughs) least? I would say, yes. Uh, But but since we have you, Kelvin, and and Andre here as experts, uh, give us a little uh, primer on El Nino and what is it that we are in the midst of right now. Okay, well, I wouldn't classify myself as the expert on El Nino, (laughs) but I'll give you a a brief rundown. Okay. So this is an interaction between the tropical ocean and tropical atmosphere in the Pacific Ocean that not only affects the tropical Pacific, but also has impacts more globally. So under normal conditions, the uh, uh, easterly winds, which are blowing from the east, pile up water on the western side of the tropical Pacific. This means that uh, warm water tends to uh, pile up in the west. And so when you, when you talk about the west, you're talking about what? I mean, we're, we're talking about Indonesia. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that, yeah, okay. yeah sorry. So d- by west, I mean Indonesia. Mm-hmm, by east, mm-hmm. I mean the Galapagos and Peru. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, under normal conditions, these uh, um, easterly winds uh, not only pile up water, but they also produce upwelling in the east. So in the east, we have what is called a cold tongue. It's actually not very cold. We're talking about 22, 23 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. Whereas on the western side, uh, the temperatures are more like uh, uh, 28, 29 degrees Celsius. So over time, this warm water can pile up and we can get an excess of warm water in the system that gets discharged and that gets discharged by uh, uh, warm water moving from the west towards the east. The winds uh, uh, slacken or tend to reverse. So during El Nino events, we get westerly winds that reduces the upwelling at the equator in the east, Mm -hmm. um, which produces uh, warmer water there. Mm-hmm. So I hear when people say it's an El Nino year, it's an El Nino year, and I'm like, what does that mean? Is it like a leap year? Is that is it like a year when a certain sports team wins the Super Bowl? I mean, how <laughs> is this something that we can predict on a clock, or it's just sort of like when this discharge happens to happen due well, to Well, uh, the processes? prediction of El Nino is an interesting science in <laughs> itself, and if we go back just one year, everybody was talking about the El Nino is coming. In fact, it didn't come. The system was prepped. Uh, in in terms of an excess of warm water in the system, but it didn't get triggered. And one of the reasons why it didn't get triggered is that we didn't have what are called westerly wind bursts. These are bursts of wind uh, that uh, originate from the west. And these uh, uh, trigger waves that uh, uh, travel across the width of the Pacific. It didn't happen last year. But this year, those westerly wind bursts did uh, appear and did uh, get us into uh, an El Nino event. Well, that, that's very interesting that you bring that up because uh, last year, when we, I was part of uh, an exercise called Makanipahili, which is a, it's an annual uh, hurricane preparedness exercise, uh, in, in, um, and it took place in 20, um, what is it, 2014. And, of course, everybody was talking about the El Nino year, right? And for you to bring this up, because even during the preparation, people were saying, well, this is going to be the year where you're going to see a lot of hurricanes coming through. And there were a few, but it wasn't out of the ordinary. But I never heard anybody until now say that it really wasn't an El Nino year. Last year? Yeah. Well, it, it depends on how you define these things, but I think the scientific community would define last year not as an El Nino okay. year. Uh, the interesting thing is that a prediction of El Nino there's something called the spring barrier. Um, before the spring, it, it becomes very difficult to predict whether or not the system is going to evolve into an El Nino. After the spring, once an event starts to develop, uh, then the prediction becomes a little bit easier. And so uh, a number of uh, forecast centers around the world are predicting that we're not only in an El Nino at the moment, but it's going to develop through to the end, at least to the end of this year. And so temperatures, uh, sea surface temperatures are going to increase uh, even more than they are at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, Andre, I want to hear about that, the specific expedition of the Fall Corps. And we've been fortunate to speak about several miss- missions aboard this cutting-edge research vessel. And they're always on a specific theme with a specific team and a specific destination in mind. Now, uh, obviously, the, these weather conditions, the central equatorial Pacific was the focus of the trip. Uh, but can you bring us up to speed on what you were hoping to accomplish when you set out on this expedition? We were hoping to make some observations in the central equatorial Pacific. So long-term, our long-term interest is 
related to El Nino, but this was not expected to be necessarily an El Nino year. We've made a lot of observations in the past in the western equatorial Pacific, where you know there is a very warm pool of water, which is 150 meters deep. Um, this time we went to the equator- equatorial central Pacific to see if conditions are very different there in the ocean. So it wasn't uh, directed at you know catching El Nino. I see. But... Uh, well, certainly we've, we're all looking at uh, our satellite images now. You've got the three storms, maybe four, another one forming. And uh, this expedition was a few weeks ago. But I would imagine that you were very aware of what these conditions were, that even the general population of Hawaii was focused on. Did that have any impact on your research when you were aboard the Falkor? Uh, not really. The plan was to make measurements in the ocean. So we're not tracking any atmospheric disturbances or anything. And ocean is kind of slow to react to the atmosphere. So we were looking at the velocity profiles and we're trying to look at the kinetic energy dissipation with that. Uh, can I just sure. jump yeah. in there? Because w- I, I talked about these westerly wind bursts. Uh, one of the things that we did witness, again, we weren't out there to specifically be there at a particular time. We Just before we got there in the month of July, there were a couple of fairly uh, intense westerly wind bursts and those westerly wind bursts um, produce the flow structures in the ocean that lead to mixing, and it's that mixing that we are interested in. Mm-hmm. So there is a connection with El Nino, but as Andre was saying, we weren't out there specifically uh, to look at El Nino. These research cruises are planned years in advance, right. and mm-hmm. if I was able to predict that this year is going to be in El Nino, I think I would win some sort of prize <laughs> for my colleagues. Well, we'll give you a Bite Marsh Cafe prize. <laughs> <laughs> They've already won. Yes, that's uh, certainly true. I mean, just being on the show. <laughs> so when, it, when, when um, deciding that this expedition is going to take place, was the primary focus on looking for the the wind patterns or the the velocity of the currents? What was it that you were primarily looking at measuring? We were uh, interested in looking at the ocean because even in the absence of any wind bursts, Mm -hmm. ocean produces very interesting velocity features. But if there was a wind, like the wind bursts that that Kelvin described, that would be kind of a bonus. We could Mm -hmm. possibly observe something that was produced by the wind and propagate it into a deeper ocean. So, so, so tell us a little bit more about the area that you were conducting yeah. this research. When you say Central Electoral Pacific, is that wide open ocean? Are you near any island chains? Is, are you looking, in fact, for interactions between features on the seafloor and the ocean, or are you trying to be in as much open ocean as possible? Well, in this case, there are islands, but they're small and not very significant for the ocean-atmosphere interactions, and topography is also pretty flat uh, in the region where we were taking measurements. Uh, so it's mostly the, a very open area where you can study ocean-atmosphere interactions. So when you talk about central equatoria, are you talking pretty much just south of south of the Hawaiian Islands? Well, it's well south of the Hawaiian Islands. It's very close to the equator, so uh-huh, within uh-huh. a few degrees of the equator. Mm-hmm. And, and towards the west. So um, Kiribati, I guess, was mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. closest island that we were at. We started in Marjaro in the in the Marshall Islands and had um, a, about seven days steaming in order to get to uh, the the equator just east of the dateline. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, this westerly burst of wind is intriguing me because 
Uh, do we actually feel that in Hawaii? I mean, normally we talk about trade winds and we talk about Kona winds, Kona winds coming up from the south, but I've never heard of a westerly burst of wind coming from, you know, the western part of the Pacific. Do we ever? Do we actually feel that? Uh, no, these these features are very much restricted to the equator. Okay. Uh, in fact, the the wind events that we are talking about uh, were caused by. A, a larger phenomenon known as the Madden-Julian oscillation, but it's something that occurs on a time scale of 20 to 40 days. These features can circumnavigate the globe. Uh, fortunately, uh, the, it was in an active phase. In other words, there were strong winds and strong convection, a lot of rain, just before we got there. While we were there, it was a break phase, so everything was nice. The winds were, were calm, uh, the seas were calm, rather. The winds were rather light. We did get uh, the occasional shower of, of, of rain, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, generally speaking, the weather was very good. But again, we have the benefit of something that happened a, a month before we got there when we were looking at the the impact that had in the interior of the ocean. So these 20 to 40 days that you just referred to, is that the period that this wind might occur, or is it... I mean, how frequently does this westerly burst actually occur? Is that that 20 to 40? Well, the westerly wind burst can be caused by a number of phenomena. Um, the, the, this Madden-Julian oscillation mm-hmm. I was talking about should not be viewed so much as an oscillation as a propagating feature in the atmosphere that probably uh, is influenced to a certain extent by the, by the ocean I- itself. And, and They and originate in the Indian Ocean, uh, propagate across the maritime continent, have produced these strong westerly winds in the western equatorial Pacific, but you can track track these features around around the globe, and so in twenty to thirty, maybe forty days time, it comes back again. Was there anything that triggered it this year that didn't tri- that it didn't get triggered last year? <laughs> well, uh, th- th- you are now getting outside my area of expertise. <laughs> but uh, the connection between uh, uh, the Madden-Julian oscillation or intraseasonal uh, variations in the word uh, uh, and the inter- intraseasonal variations in the wind and El Nino is, is, a, is a hot research topic at, mm-hmm. at the moment. Hot is actually true. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's correct, but it is true that during El Nino events, uh, we do get a succession of these westerly wind events that start in the in the um, western equatorial Pacific and progress further further east as time goes by. Well, mm-hmm. it certainly feels like it's getting a little more humid in here. So, uh, switching from the atmosphere back to the ocean and the research that you had done, um, Andre. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about your research in general. I mean, what, what sort of facilities did the Falkor make available to you that, was, that were specific or unique uh, that allowed you to do things that you weren't able to do before in your research? I mean, were you sending out deploying sensors? Were you flying drones? I mean, what were the t- tools that you had at your disposal? Well, the most important equipment were the two party decks that the ship has because we did a lot of planning like while you know, relaxing on party decks. <laughs> oh, but, I, I thought I uh, misheard you, but you did say party, party decks. decks. Okay. Right. Okay. So uh, equipment that we used, we brought it with ourselves. And uh, so it's, it was a basically acoustic Doppler current meter, which m- can measure currents with very high resolution. By very high, I mean about two meters in the vertical direction. Mm. We also brought a vertical microstructure profiler with us, which was supposed to measure 
uh, dissipation rates, but we didn't use it very much. Mm -hmm. But uh, also uh, the Falcor provided very good uh, crew and, uh, you know, other things that normally are provided on the ship. And would you say that this mission was a success? Did you come back with the reams and reams of data you were looking for? I think so. Uh, even though we didn't have all the instruments that we wanted to use, this acoustic Doppler current profiler did provide us with some very interesting features, which we are currently analyzing, and uh, we'll tell more about it mm -hmm. later. Ah, <laughs> got to wait for the paper. Probably. What, what sort of uh, wind instruments did you use to gather, let's say, you know, the uh, velocity and direction of wind? Uh, I didn't look at the wind data collected on the ship. Maybe Kellen can say something about that. Rather, the, the ship does carry a number of MET packages that measure the wind, uh, humidity, temperature, etc. Mm -hmm. And we certainly have access to those data. But in terms of uh, looking at the longer term, a uh, larger scale, so, so the ship is measuring what is happening at a single point. What we need is information about what is happening over a larger area, over a larger time. And uh, we make use a lot of satellite data, uh, giving us information on on the the, the wind stress close to close to the surface, uh, the sea surface temperature, etc. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I think this might be asking you to sort of back one team over another, but uh, Andre, can you tell uh, me when? It sounds like certainly when uh, the, the either the meteorologists or other or just people who are watching their weather apps, they focus a lot on atmospheric conditions to talk about weather. They focus a lot about uh, what they can see. And um, when we hear about El Nino and we hear about uh, the effect on our weather, a lot of us are, uh, I think even this conversation frequently sort of drifts back into the atmosphere. But your interest is specifically the impact, the, the influence that ocean conditions have below the surface of the water. If you were to uh, perhaps put in a word for the ocean team, when we're looking at this complex system that controls the weather in the Pacific or over Hawaii, what percentage of it do you think is happening below the surface of the water in terms of that power, that influence, versus what we can see above the sea, the sea level? Well, I don't think there is a way to assign a percentage ah. to that, but uh, people are right to focus on the atmosphere because that's where we live. But <laughs> atmosphere is affected by the ocean, especially in the tropics, because the sea surface temperature is a very important thing which actually creates the atmospheric circulation patterns. But what happens at the surface of the ocean can be very much controlled by what's, what kind of temperature of water is below the surface. And uh, to get that water to influence atmosphere, you need mixing processes. So normally you can get mixing just by cooling the very surface of, of the ocean, which occurs on clear nights, for example. But in the deeper ocean, there is nothing really to mix uh, water except for shear. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think when we're talking about climate change and even longer scale uh, changes in our environment, um, a lot of people are now focusing on ocean temperature, its effect on coral health, coral bleaching, affecting on the migration or movement of sea uh, organisms. Is this something that is impacted by your research as well? I think so, yes. Calvin? Mm -hmm. yes, uh, <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, the, the, the change in the, the state of the ocean uh, during global warming is obviously important, but it's not only the temperature. Uh, uh, ocean acidification uh, is happening, and that and that affects uh, the the biology in the ocean, in, in particular coral reefs. Mm -hmm. 
Now you've uh, you've brought up the point that uh, the Falkor has gone out. It, it basically took some measurements. It's it's a, a snapshot. And what I'm curious to hear after we get back from the break is, does this need to be re-measured again on a yearly basis? So before we do that, we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Kelvin Richards and Andre Natarov, and we're talking about the warming Pacific. How long before we can start talking about La Nina cooling? We'd, of course, love to hear from you if you have a question. 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Sam Campos grew up reading comic books in his art class, but he wasn't just goofing off. He was creating a career as the creator of Pineapple Man. His current project is Dragonfly, a science fiction supernatural martial arts drama. And as we look ahead to Hawaii's amazing Comic Con, we'll talk with Sam tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. On the next On Being, the mind at work with Mike Rose. So the plumber who reaches up inside of the wall of an old building, feeling the way the thing is structured, he's visualizing and then bringing a knowledge base to bear on trying to figure out what the problem may be. Think of what a complex set of mental operations are involved in that. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Kelvin Richards and Andre Nadarov about El Nino. And, of course, you can give us a call if you have a question about our weather. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, you know, right before the break, we were talking about um, something that you, Kelvin, brought up was the fact that, well, I think both of you, Andre and Kelvin, brought this up, is that, you you know, the fall core went out. You did a measurement. It was, uh, I guess, uh, about a month or so ago, and it's a snapshot in time. And it did reveal some very interesting things that are currently happening. But how frequently do we need to measure the ocean and the atmosphere? And does it require a continual presence of fall core, or are there sensors that are out there that's going to be feeding us data to you know give us a better idea okay well there there are two things that we need to do for 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 el nino prediction we need to monitor the state of the ocean uh, and that helps enormously in terms of being able to predict when an el nino is going to occur so for instance this buildup of heat that i talked about that occurred last year was observed through a, uh, a moored array of instrumentation uh, that spans the tropical Pacific called the Tau Triton Array, um, which is uh, uh, maintained by the U.S. And, and the western part by Japan. So we can monitor the ocean through that sort of instrumentation. What we have been concentrating on are the processes that occur on relatively short time and space scales. The, the the research on the Falcor builds on a number of years' experience we've had 
primarily in the western equatorial Pacific, making use of Japanese, Korean, and U.S. ships. Mm -hmm. Turbulence and the mixing associated with that is a very intermittent process, and it's different every time we go out. Uh, So over the years, we have collected data that gives us much more confidence in ascribing uh, the flow features and the, uh, the the mixing associated with those flow features. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not necessarily a case of having to go out uh, uh, at particular <laughs> times or necessarily on a regular basis, but observing the ocean under different states such as El Nino or La Nina, mm. the opposite of El Nino, uh, is very beneficial to gaining uh, that information, which feeds into uh, feeds into climate models that are being used for climate research and forecast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you're tuning in, uh, we're talking to uh, Kelvin Richards and Andre Natarov, and they were recently aboard the research vessel Falkor, uh, doing some measurements in the, in the equatorial Pacific and learning a lot about the conditions of the atmosphere as well as the ocean temperature. And, of course, you have a question or comment to Share with us. You can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. We want to welcome Hoku from the Big Island to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Aloha. Um, I am an educator and I have some grave uh, concerns regarding um, the lack of proposed or ongoing research on uh, Fukushima, Daiichi, um, nuclear disaster, and um, for anyone with a science background, we know that radioactivity does not just dissipate, even with uh, shorter-lived radioactive isotopes. Um, so I'm wondering if our guests could uh, expand on any possible research, proposed research, or ongoing research of the effects of Fukushima on ocean warming and climatic changes. All right. Thank you for the call. Well, it, it, it doesn't necessarily affect uh, ocean warming, but it is true that radionuclides were put into the water following the, uh, the release from the nuclear plant uh, and that uh, those produce very detectable rises in radiation locally. It is also true that the waters close to Japan do circulate around the Pacific and bring some of those radionuclides but by the time it reaches the Hawaiian Islands, they're very, very much diluted. And I, I, I don't necessarily want to make any specific statements on air, but uh, I think you can re- be rest assured that in terms of the radiation, uh, that, is, that is going to be a, a very small impact, probably negligible impact of what we can see here. What we have seen, and actually there's research going on in the International Pacific Research Center, is looking at the debris that uh, was also produced during uh, the tsunami. And uh, you may well be aware that we we find uh, debris from that event that can be traced um, through uh, models that predict where the the, the um, debris has has transfer has transversed the ocean. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, the models uh, run by um, um, Nikolai Maximenko have uh, did well in terms of predicting when we can see stuff uh, washing up on the shores of Hawaii. When has that, uh, has that, uh, 
Are we past that prediction point, or are we actually encountering it right now? Uh, we're still encountering stuff. Sure. sure. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, Andre, I know you mentioned that we would have to stay tuned for the official papers that come out, but I know that when you arrived back from your uh, expedition, you probably had a good sense of uh, some of the... Uh, output of the research that you were able to do, the information that you gathered. You're looking to see or measure the impact of ocean conditions below the sea level on things like the weather, severe weather that we're experiencing. Uh, Were you validated, perhaps, at least from some of the early data that you looked at? Uh, Too early to say yes, (laughs) but... uh so we do have some expectations of what we're supposed to see. Of course, when we just start taking measurements, nothing is confirmed or you know, overruled. But as we continued gathering data for a number of days, we found that some of the features that we were seeing are predicted by simple models that we ran before the cruise. And uh, that was kind of reassuring that at least our modeling is on the right track. So with this kind of modeling and the, the if there's a parity between the models and what you observed out on your expedition, does that mean that moving forward, if you have information, sensors about current and temperature conditions of the water, that you can t- have a stronger sense of what you might anticipate in terms of weather conditions? Absolutely. I think so, yes, because we now understand better the state of the ocean. We know that we have models that work for the ocean. The next step is to put this into coupled models where atmosphere and ocean are both active and interacting. Mm -hmm. Now, given the data points that you've collected, the observations that you've made, can you tell us a little bit about the season that we're in and perhaps how long it might last? And are we in an extended El Nino, which perhaps, I mean, there's already the... um, expectation of preparation that this heat isn't going to leave us until December. I mean, give us a sense as to what your findings might have might have I, been. In, in all likelihood, things will will last well into December and maybe into the to, to, to early next year. Hawaii is on the edge of the tropics, and so it's only during strong El Nino events that we see a significant impact on our islands. But we're already seeing sea surface temperatures uh, looking at uh, a chart uh, this afternoon, that sea surface temperatures are, are two degrees Celsius warmer than normal. Uh, that obviously has, and because the trade wing winds have slackened, that has an impact on the temperature that we get. Mm-hmm. So during a normal El Nino event, uh, we expect warmer temperatures during the summer, uh, and in the in the winter, because of the reduced trade winds. Uh, we may well expect a, a drought. So look out, look at Diamond Head and see if it remains brown uh, right through through the winter. But of course, the, the topic on everybody's mind at the moment is the production of tropical cyclones. Uh, I, it's my understanding this is a record year in that we have three tropical cyclones in the Central Pacific at the moment and possibly a fourth one uh, uh, forming. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the, the 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 change in conditions in the the tropical atmosphere. It's a combination of uh, 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 changes in the lateral uh, shear of the wind, uh, producing stronger um, instabilities in the system. The warmer temperatures produce more evaporation, and that uh, water vapor fuels the tropical cyclones. And the fact that the the lateral gradient of temperature is reduced 
that reduces the vertical shear of of um, uh, in the atmosphere, and vertical shear is a killer of tropical cyclones. Without that uh, vertical shear, it allows these tropical cyclones to grow and and to propagate. Mm-hmm. So I think we're already dreading the fact that it might be humid and warm all the way through December, that it could be a muggy Christmas, for example. But does that mean that these conditions that are also causing this, that are sustaining, also will sustain the generation of these storms? I mean, are we going to run out of letters again in terms of naming all these storms? It's, it's quite possible. I don't want to be the prophet of doom. <laughs> and I, but uh, it, the conditions are likely to continue. So under, in a normal year, the tropical cyclone season lasts for another month or two through to October. But during El Nino, it, it extends again uh, to the to the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So uh, watch out, I guess. Now, the, uh, this past Christmas uh, winter season in Hawaii was, was I thought, extremely dry. And normally we, we get a fair amount of rain, but we didn't have much rain. And, of course, this summer has been pretty dry uh, up until, like, last Wednesday <laughs> where we had a bit of a, a downpour. But uh, given the observations that you've made can you say anything about what perhaps might occur next year? Or is it hard to extrapolate? Uh, the most likely thing to happen next year is that the system flips into what is called a La Nina. So that's uh, when uh, the, the uh, easterly winds become stronger, uh, the upwelling in the east uh, becomes stronger, the ocean temperatures in the east become much uh, Cooler, mm-hmm. uh, so we we would expect a the system to um, to to change into the reverse conditions. Now, now is that sorry, is that common? I mean, I'm already I'm looking for relief. Yeah. So <laughs> if we have a La Nino year, it does essentially mean that the the reversing of that is a natural or a likely expectation. Or it we... it occurs when we get large, strong El Ninos. They are typically uh, followed by La Nina. Again, I'm not going to predict <laughs> what, what will happen. Well, certainly uh, meteorologists struggle to predict what's going to happen in two days. So asking you about next year is a bit of a challenge. Um, Andre, so you've done this research and you're saving the best analysis of that data. But what is the next set of data you need to collect or what is the next model that you need to address? I mean, I, I really want to know what's next, whether it's aboard the Falkor or not, that you need to do to continue your work. Well, data is always good. So whenever an opportunity <laughs> comes, I will take it. Uh, in terms of but short-term plans are about modeling, and that could be using high-resolution models to resolve the things that we're seeing. And uh, So you're not going to be on a boat with a party deck anytime soon? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> now, is the Falcor the only boat that you could leverage in terms of collecting this data? No, I think there are many boats, research ships, which in can Hawaii. Be used. In Hawaii, yes, uh, Kilamoana is one. Okay. Uh, RV, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, we sailed on the Kilamoana uh, two times uh, in 2012 to the Western Equatorial Pacific. So the U- the U.S. has a fleet of research ships mm-hmm. which we can apply for for time on. The the wonderful thing about the Falcor and the Schmidt Institute is that they offer the ship time uh, for free, essentially. I mean, st- it still costs to put a cruise on. Mm-hmm. But uh, having that extra uh, facility uh, it is a wonderful opportunity to be able to go out and take measurements of the sort that we have. Well, if I had a choice to go on a, the Falcor or the uh, Kilamoana, I, I would definitely go on the Falcor. <laughs> but... 
just given the fact that the kind of meals they serve, they didn't serve me any meals, so I can't speak firsthand, but the impression I got was that there are some pretty top-notch chefs on, 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 on board. Uh, there were no complaints from anybody. <laughs> you were well food. fed, Andre. Yes. <laughs> How much longer is the Falkor available for research uh, for researchers in in Hawaii? I mean, I know that it spends time in certain regions, and then it moves on to help other uh, research uh, institutions. Well, I I'm I'm not familiar exactly with what the Falkor is going to do next. At the moment, it is in Hawaii. It's going uh, to a refit and into dry dock to um, fix various things. Uh, exactly what it's doing after that, I do not know. But um, they have a call out at the moment for proposals to work in 2006, 2017, 2018 time. And it will depend on where, what people are proposing to do, which oceans uh, they work in. And so will you be submitting a proposal to do some follow-on work well, we were uh, with Andre. We were discussing some wacky ideas oh, of wacky. using 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 the ship to look at uh, mixing processes and the impact on on biology in the ocean. The 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 good thing I think the Equatorial Ocean is a wonderful natural laboratory. Mm-hmm. From our research to date, we can tell you where mixing events are going to occur and uh, putting down dyes and maybe looking at how. Um, uh, interactions between biological uh, components of the system happen as one of these mixing events occurs would be a great thing to do. Well, keep us on your distribution Well, and and is there a site that we can go to to find out where... uh... Uh, Yes, the the Schmidt Ocean Institute has its own own, uh, website, website, and the Falcor cruises are on there, and you can... You'll have to Google. I do not know okay. what Schmidtocean. We'll, we'll uh, we'll there you go. <laughs> Sounds good. Kevin Richards and Andre Nataro are both with the International Pacific Research Center at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology over at UH. And we want to thank you both for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure. It's a pleasure being here. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll find out about the new STEM office at UH. And of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And of course, you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And I'd love it if you'd follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong. Our producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. We are... HBR. That's right. We are HBR. We leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Twerps and a song called Dreamin'. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.